Your last day of vacation and you found time for a deep tissue massage followed by a long mud bath then a two-hour nap. Because you're an American Express Platinum Guard member and booked your stay at a fine hotel and resort through Amex Travel, which means a 4 p.m. checkout. And those relaxing vacation vibes can keep going at the airport in the Centurion Lounge. Just a splash. Before you board the plane back to reality. That's the powerful backing of American Express. See how to elevate your travel experiences at americanexpress.com slash with Amex. Terms apply. Good morning. I'm Charles Osgood, and this is Sunday Morning. A Sunday morning in which we examine two very different chapters in our history. Today marks the 15th anniversary of the 9-11 attacks on this country, of which more in a moment. And we are just days away from the dedication of a new museum that for its backers is a dream come true. Lee Cowan will report our cover story. The new National Museum of African American History and Culture will be a lot of things, but what it is not, says music legend and museum council member Quincy Jones, is a museum only for black Americans by black Americans. It's all the same stuff, man. It really is. You can't, you can't divide it up. How the Smithsonian's newest edition aims to tell the whole story of American history ahead on Sunday morning. Wendy Williams is a popular TV talk show host, and this morning she's talking to us, holding nothing back from our Michelle Miller. What are you scared of? I'm Wendy from Jersey. Wendy Williams is bold and unfiltered. It's better than digging a ditch. <laughs> and I'm, a, I'm a robust girl. I can dig a ditch. I think you can <laughs> dig a pretty deep ditch. Later on Sunday morning, she says it like she means it. How you doing? How you doing? <laughs> Does that ever get old? No. We take note this morning of pop star Demi Lovato. Someone so young, she's traveled a very long way, as Tracy Smith will show us. 24-year-old platinum recording artist Demi Lovato went from child star to superstar almost overnight, and the trip nearly killed her. What path do you think you were headed down? When you live that fast, you die young. And I was headed down a very, very dark path. Demi Lovato on success, self-doubt, and salvation. Ahead this Sunday morning. As we mentioned a moment ago, today is the 15th anniversary of the 9-11 attacks. We have a remembrance from Martha Teichner. Could it possibly be 15 years since 9-11? The World Trade Center site has been transformed into a shrine and a bold statement of resilience. We will never forget the people that died, but we can and will go on. Ahead this Sunday morning, remembrance and resurrection on hallowed ground. With Anthony Mason, we'll be driving in style. 
will mark the passing of a woman whose picture has all but come to define the end of World War II. Steve Hartman finds out what's good for the goose. Ahead, art on wheels. August Wilson, oh, what a genius. But first, American history made whole. Network featuring radio and TV personalities talking business, sports, tech, entertainment, and more. Play it at play.it. Two weeks from now, we'll see a dream come true. The dedication of a new museum in Washington that will tell a story that's never been fully told before. Our cover story is reported now by Lee Cowan. in the Hollywood Hills on one of those California evenings that those who don't live here wonder why they don't. Quincy Jones was at the piano, trying to calm his nerves. At 83, it's hard to imagine what could possibly unsettle such a music legend. After all, he worked with the likes of Michael Jackson. He has 27 Grammys to his name, as well as an Oscar. But Quincy Jones' latest task it's pretty daunting. What's the biggest challenge? Just trying to figure out. The big out... challenge is to do what, who, why. <laughs> <laughs> you know, because it's a big story to tell there. One day when the glory comes, it will be ours. It will be ours. The story he has to tell is nothing short of the tale of black America. He's producing the dedication ceremony for the opening of the Smithsonian's National Museum of African American History and Culture. As many as 20,000 people are expected to descend on the mall to watch President Obama cut the ribbon himself. You know, the key is there's no future without a good past, good knowledge of the past, and that's what we're trying to do. Jones is on the museum's council and has been working closely with founding director Lonnie Bunch to help collect items of both musical and cultural significance. He's had his fingers on sort of American culture for 60 years. Um, and I find myself pinching myself, saying, I'm sitting here with Quincy Jones. Oh, my goodness. Let me show you one of my favorite little things behind Sammy Davis Jr.'s tap shoes when he was a baby. Oh, wow. <laughs> I worked with him when, he was 12, when I was 12. Really? Well, yeah. you know, he was probably 12 when he got those shoes. Yeah. This is just one of the museum's 11 massive galleries, displaying, in total, more than 30,000 priceless artifacts. There is a lot of space to fill. The museum is 400,000 square feet, 60% of which is underground. I wish I knew how it would feel to be free. Down on those lower floors, a darker tale is told. Slave shackles are bad enough, but these were used to enslave a child. There's Emmett Till's casket, the young boy whose lynching in 1955 helped spark the civil rights movement. And there's the stools from a Woolworth's lunch counter, where black students were refused service and so refused to leave. 
But make no mistake, Bunch says, this is not, nor was it ever intended, to be the National Museum of Discrimination. For me, the African-American experience is an experience not of tragedy, but of unbelievable belief, belief in themselves, belief in an America that often didn't believe in them. Few items better represent that sentiment than a P.T. Stearman biplane flown by the pioneering Tuskegee Airmen of World War II. If you could, in essence, fly as high and as fast as white pilots, then surely racial equality would follow on the ground. There's also Chuck Berry's 73 Cadillac, Carl Lewis's Olympic medals, and Muhammad Ali's boxing gloves. We had to say, let's tell the story and find the balance between those stories that are going to make you cry and those stories that are going to make you smile. August Wilson, oh, what a genius. Which is why Quincy Jones makes such a valuable resource. He, like so many others, has succeeded in the face of enormous obstacles. You come from the bottom, you never forget it. Never. He was born in Chicago, in what he calls one of the biggest black ghettos in America. He lived for a time with his grandmother, a former slave. And while touring the South with jazz great Lionel Hampton, experienced firsthand the sting of racism. We'd get to see the biggest church in town. From the steeple of one of the big churches, they'd have a rope and an effigy of a black dummy hanging off the top of the steeples. You remember that to this day? Hell, you don't, how are you going to forget that? By the 50s, he watched some of the greatest entertainers on the Las Vegas Strip being cheered on stage, but scorned off it. Belafonte, Lena Horne, Sammy, they couldn't even go into the casino. They had to eat in the kitchen, get $17,000 as starring at the show, and go back to a black hotel on the other side of town. Given the struggle for equality, it's perhaps not surprising that even in the museum world, the African-American piece to the nation's historic puzzle was often missing. If you believe in something, you have to stand up and, and fight and push and pull. Few pushed and pulled harder to legislate a home for the museum than civil rights icon John Lewis. We met the Georgia congressman at the Ebenezer Baptist Church in Atlanta, where the Reverend Martin Luther King Jr. was pastor. You've introduced a bill almost every year for how many years? 15 years, 15. almost 15 years. And what was the opposition? There was just some feeling on the part of one or two, but there was one particular member, the late Senator Jesse Hill. Each time the bill would come up in the Senate, he would put a hold on it. Every time? Every single time. It wasn't until 2003 that President George W. Bush finally signed bipartisan legislation getting the ball rolling. But it would be another nine years before construction on the museum began, erecting the bones of what years later would support this bronze-colored structure that purposely stands out against its all-white neighbors. What's it going to be like for you walking through those doors the I, first time? I, I, I don't know. I'm probably going, uh, I'm going to try to hold it, but I probably will cry. It is my hope that it will help make America a better country and make our people a better people. Getting us ready for the Smithsonian. Yeah, that's exciting, isn't it? Perhaps yeah, it already has. That little Bible, I can think of it being in your hands. And Morris and Mark Person's ancestors were slave owners in Virginia and came into possession of what is one of the centerpieces of the new museum. It's a well-worn Bible belonging to Nat Turner, 
who in 1831 led a bloody slave revolt that left 55 white Virginians dead, all in a single night. We had ancestors that were slain that didn't make it, so it's, uh, it's close to home. And nothing, no animosity against Nat Turner. I, I think it's a time for reconciliation. It was actually two slaves who saved Mark Person's great-great-grandmother by hiding her from the angry mob. The compassion of the slave saved her ancestors. So, you know, I, I think about it, if it hadn't been for the slaves, you know, I wouldn't be able to tell the story. And they, they could have easily said, here she is, and didn't. As family heirlooms go, Nat Turner's Bible was so significant, experts say it could have gone for millions at auction. But the Persons didn't ask for a cent. In fact, Bunch says as much as 80% of the museum's artifacts were donated by ordinary people who pulled them out of their basements, their attics, or their churches. Each item in the museum's collection tells a story, some of a tortured racial past, others of resiliency and optimism but they are all threads woven into the same tapestry, depicting not only how we as a nation got here, but how we as a nation are still struggling to make it better. We still haven't figured it out. You know, we, right, as, as we speak right now, we're trying to figure it out, you know? And, it's, and it's, it's, a, it's a dilemma, isn't it? It's a long time, man. So what's the solution? The solution is unite or fight, you know? And I think we, it's time that we got to unite. Don't know we're going to make it. Next, Henry Hudson takes Manhattan. And now, a page from our Sunday morning almanac. September 11th, 1609, 407 years ago today. The day a ship captained by Henry Hudson anchored near the mouth of the river that now bears his name. Hudson was sailing on behalf of the Dutch aboard the Half Moon, recreated in 1989. He was looking for the elusive Northwest Passage, an imagined shortcut between Europe and the Far East. What he discovered instead was an unspoiled island that the native people called Manahata. Centuries later, the Manahata project has recreated what that wooded island must have looked like. Not that it stayed that way for long. The Dutch established New Amsterdam in 1625, only to have the British conquer it and rename it New York in 1664. A huge and towering city came to rise on what we know today as Manhattan. And despite the horror of another September 11th, it rises still. Ahead, concept cars, Italian style. Welcome to Play It, a new podcast network featuring radio and TV personalities talking business, sports, tech, entertainment, and more. Play it at play.it. Driving in style is easy if you're behind the wheel of a car that's a work of art. Anthony Mason has been kicking some tires. 
A parade of Italian beauties rolled into Nashville recently. 19 classic automobiles, each more irresistible than the next, arrived at the Frist Center for the Visual Arts for the opening of Bellissima, an exhibition celebrating Italy's post-war automotive renaissance. You know, the beauty of the design. Dr. Thomas Mao kept a close eye as his Lancia Stratos was unloaded and sat behind the steering wheel as the one-of-a-kind wedge car was pulled into the gallery. Stop. You squeeze and turn, and that serves as a door release. And that's actually the keyhole. That's a keyhole there as well, so you can actually lock it. So now, climbing in can require gymnastic skill. Oof. Do you escort your car wherever it goes? <laughs> <laughs> well, it, it's a bit like attending graduations or you know, your daughter's wedding. I mean, you just got to be there. Mao, a management consultant and renowned watch collector, couldn't resist the Stratos when it unexpectedly came up for auction in 2011. He paid just over a million dollars for it. I was driving around for a couple of days afterwards just in a state of euphoria, but also like, oh my God, what did I do? <laughs> uh, buyer's remorse? <laughs> uh, never buyer's remorse, but uh, kind of uh, a sanity check. <laughs> The chrome and the curves on these Italian classics inspire that kind of crazy passion. These cars still look modern. They look like they haven't been built yet. I mean, they look like they'll be built in the next decade. They're pretty incredible. The familiar names are at the frist, of course. Ferrari, Lamborghini, Maserati. But the ultimate example, says chief curator Mark Scala, is a trio of cars commissioned by Alfa Romeo in the 50s called the Berlinetta Aerodynamica Technica. The back cars were designed by Franco Scaglione, and Scaglione had been in aviation, but he'd also been a fashion designer. These are kind of like Milanese gowns on wheels. I mean, they're really, really meant to be beautiful. Some of the cars created in Italy were aimed at America, like the creamsicle-colored Lincoln Indianapolis. This is a Lincoln, but it's an Italian design. Yes. Yeah, it was uh, done this way because uh, Carrozzeria Boano wanted to get the lucrative business of the American market. Legendary car guy Ken Gross, who curated the exhibition, says the Italian coach builders Boano designed this body on a Lincoln chassis in 1955. Lincoln was working on its own two-seater personal coupe, the Continental. So when this was finished, there was really no market for it. The 37th International Automobile Salon at Turin. The Chrysler Ghia Gilda, also introduced in 1955, in Turin, would have a more lasting impact. Fantasy? No, it's the car of the future by Fiat. Whichever way you look at it on the revolving stand, it's certainly an eye-catcher. Here it is from the other end. Commissioned by Chrysler, the Ghia Gilda and its fabulous fins would influence a decade of Chrysler styling. Which brings us back to Dr. Thomas Mao's car, the 1970 Lancia Stratos HF0, which appeared in the Michael Jackson film Moonwalker. It was designed on spec by Nuccio Bertoni, who arrived at the Lancia security gate without an appointment. They wouldn't raise the, 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 barrier. the barrier for him, and he just drove right underneath it. <laughs>
how high is this car? 33 inches at the highest point. 33 inches? So it actually still holds the world record for the lowest fully functional vehicle ever made. Dr. Mao has had a lifelong love affair with the car. It still takes your breath away. It still does. I come back into the gallery and see it and I'm just head over heels, you know, in love again. If you can dream it, you can do it. Enzo Ferrari famously said, this fall, the Frist Center in Nashville is a parking lot full of dreams. So I have just one question. How do we get out of this thing? <laughs> <laughs> Very carefully. Still to come. I curse like a sailor in real life. A talk with talk show host Wendy Williams. When the mic is hot, I know what to do. I need to use my voice for more than just singing. I'm lucky. I had the resources and support. And also pop star and mental health advocate Demi Lovato. It's Sunday morning on CBS, and here again is Charles Osgood. Hit songs like Give Your Heart a Break have helped to put Demi Lovato on the music map. She is a successful young singer, but her path hasn't always been easy. With Tracy Smith, we take note. In a business where careers are sometimes measured in weeks, Demi Lovato is a seasoned veteran. She made her first gold record in 2008, and now, at age 24, she's had a stream of chart-topping hits, like 2015's Cool for the Summer. Don't tell your mother, kiss one another, die for each other, we're cool for the summer. Future Now on three. One, two, three. Future Now! We recently met up with her and co-headliner Nick Jonas at the Washington, D.C. stop of their 44-city tour. Do you have, like, any mantra or anything that you say? No mantras. Um, just a couple deep breaths and just go up there and try to kill it. Her onstage outfits are jaw-dropping. But this summer, she made a speech at the Democratic National Convention that was even more revealing. Like millions of Americans, I am living with mental illness. Specifically, she suffers from bipolar disorder. You're very open about your struggles. Yes. Why? At a young age, I realized that I have, if, if I'm going to become a singer, I need to use my voice for more than just singing. I'm lucky. I had the resources and support to get treatment at a top facility. It was an extraordinary admission for a pop star to make, especially on national TV. But Demi Lovato has spent a lifetime standing out from the crowd. <laughs> That's me. She was a working actress at age 10, co-starring with a purple dinosaur. I love you, you love me. Even then, she dreamed and prayed she'd one day get the chance to really sing. It sounds ridiculous, but like I kind of made a pact with God. And I, I don't think you're even supposed to do that, but I, but I was like, I promise if you make me a singer, one day I'm going to use my voice for so much more than singing and I'm gonna help people with it. And you've held up your end of the bargain. I've held up my end of the bargain, I still do. 
And God's held up his. And God <laughs> held up his. He was like, you don't realize what you're asking for, but here you go. This is real. This is me. This was the answer to that prayer. The lead role in a hit Disney Channel movie, Camp Rock. Within weeks, Demi Lovato went from child actor to teen superstar. She says the sudden fame did a number on her body and soul. Off camera, she battled bulimia, depression, substance abuse, and at age 18 made the first of several trips to rehab. Were you a model patient? No, no. I don't think there is such thing as a model patient in rehab. Yeah, at one point while I was in treatment, I was continuing to use drugs and drink um, because I couldn't, um, I couldn't function without it. The downward spiral continued until 2011, when, after an especially rough night, her therapist put her in touch with Mike Baer, founder of the CAST Centers, an addiction treatment and wellness facility in Los Angeles. When you first met Demi, mm -hmm. what was she like? She was very closed off, um, would sleep a lot, um, one-word answers, didn't really care about Anything. Yeah. Bear's first move was to take away everything, including her freedom. You said, hand over your phone, hand over your car keys, your driver's license, your credit cards. Um, and I had a curfew. I had somebody sleeping in the same room with me because I was so manipulative and sneaky that I could make anything happen wherever it needed to happen. So I had to give up all of that freedom in order for for it to work. And it seems it has worked. She's learned to deal with her issues, sometimes by going to the gym and punching them out. This place is called Unbreakable, and apparently she is. You know, you could do any exercise you want. You could do like, you know, aerobic Zumba yeah, and that's that not kind fun of stuff. For me. No? I, I, yeah, it's not fun for me. This is fun for me. And also, I get to be like, I get to be one of the guys. I spend a lot of time in hair and makeup and doing a lot of girly stuff, but in here, my inner dude comes out. Your so, inner dude. Yeah, my inner dude. And that inner dude has quite a kick. Oh my goodness. You look like a fighter to me. Thanks. <laughs> Thanks. I look like a sweaty pop star right now. That's what I look like. <laughs> A tough, sweaty pop a star. A tough, sweaty pop star. <laughs> the workouts help her cope with the physical demands of her tour. She's also bringing Mike Bear and his staff to every city on the road to give her fans a chance to see what successful treatment looks and sounds like. My name is Mike Bear, and I'm the CEO, founder of Cast Centers. Lovato has bought into the Cast program, literally. She's now a co-owner. There's a lot of lessons I've learned over the years. Phil McIntyre is her longtime manager. How many 24-year-olds do you know that own their own treatment center, which is incredible, um, but then to leverage and use their platform in pop culture to do such good, I think is just incredible. Yeah, I mean, you could have invested in a lot of things mm -hmm. that you chose this. What do you think it says? Uh, I'm not so concerned with what it says. It just feels good. God knows I try to feel happy for you. For Demi Lovato, there will likely be more platinum albums ahead. Hit it. And more TV shows. Yeah, 
But she's also four years sober, and to her, nothing else will ever be more important. Because of that, I'm now sitting here right now alive and more successful than I've ever been. That's interesting that you use that phrase, sitting here alive. What yeah, because that's actually the most important part of that sentence. Like, yes, it's cool that I'm successful, but the most successful thing that I've done has been able to beat my addiction and that I'm sitting alive in front of you today. Coming up, the kiss seen around the world. Network featuring radio and TV personalities talking business, sports, tech, entertainment, and more. Play it at play.it. It happened this past week. The death of Greta Zimmer Friedman, who always said that she was the young woman in the famous Alfred Eisenstadt photo of a sailor and a nurse kissing in Times Square on BJ Day. In 2012, Greta Friedman reunited with former sailor George Mendonza in Times Square, where they told our Michelle Miller about their brief encounter. I did not see him approaching, and before I knew it, I was in this tight grip. How long did you kiss her? Not long. She was there checking out rumors she'd heard that Japan had indeed surrendered. He was a sailor, happy that he would not be going back into combat. Did either of you see the picture when it was first published in Life magazine? I'm sure I saw it. Did you recognize yourself? Yes, of course. I mean, you don't forget this guy grabbing you. <laughs> there were millions of kisses of joy that day. But this is the one the world remembers. Greta Friedman was 92. Next, what's good for the goose? <laughs> they say what's good for the goose is good for the gander. But is it also good for the man in the boat? Here's Steve Hartman. I've heard of lakes where the fish jump right into your boat. But this was ridiculous. That is a 10-pound Canadian goose. It's a little disconcerting. <laughs> Her name is Kyle. And she has a huge crush on the owner of this boat, a guy named Mike Javanji. No! Mike and his stalker goose friend here live on Lake Oswego outside Portland, Oregon, where every day Mike tries to tell her it's over. And every day, Kyle says, oh, no, it's not. <laughs> Kyle first fell for Mike two years ago as a gosling after she was abandoned by her mother. One of my friends noticed her drowning in the water, like almost just, you know, desperate, alone, and it's just, at any minute she would have been run over by a boat. So Mike took her in and took her everywhere. I just figured I would keep it alive long enough to be an adult and defend for itself. And then it would just go on of its course, way. yeah. Didn't work out that way? No, she never left. <laughs> I've tried to get rid of her, you know. I've driven her miles away and then left her in the middle of nowhere. And when I come back, she's already home before me. So there's not a lot we can do. Obviously, so, the goose has imprinted on Mike. Like you can't get away from her, really. Right? No, she's everywhere. 
Even when we went into town to a coffee shop, Kyle was right on his heels. And Mike says she would have stuck even closer if I was a woman. When girls come around and she senses they're a threat, she lets them know. And she's smart enough to know actually who the threats are and who they aren't. So, <laughs> so yeah. she definitely thinks this is serious between you two. Yeah, oh yeah. And if truth be told, at this point, Mike is equally smitten. Today, their little cat and mouse game is just that, a game. A chance for Kyle to get some exercise and for Mike to enjoy an incredibly close encounter with an incredibly trusting friend. Kyle really has fallen beak over tail feathers for this guy, but she's not taking any chances either. See, unlike humans who believe if you love someone, you should let them go and see if they come back, Kyle seems to believe if you love someone, why chance them getting away when you can fly faster? When you say it like you mean it, you have to be prepared for people to judge. Next, talk show host Wendy Williams speaking her mind. And later, 26,000 people worked on this site. They gave it their all. Ground zero, 15 years later. Taylor's really talented and really beautiful, and she's got really long legs. Like a giraffe, in a good way. It's Sunday morning on CBS, and here again is Charles Osgood. That's Wendy Williams, the no-holds-barred TV talk show host. And this morning, she's talking with our Michelle Miller. The queen of hot topics and celebrity gossip, Wendy Williams is always ready to talk. If you've done something as a celebrity and there's a story that just falls on my doorstep, yes, I'm picking it up and I'm bringing it to the studio and we're going to talk about this. The theme of her show, which enters its eighth season next week, is Say It Like You Mean It. With an approach that's bold and unfiltered, She's not afraid of Hollywood's biggest name. First of all, your name is Gwyneth. <laughs> Shout out to all the Gwyneths watching. But you know your name has an air of pomposity to it. When you say it like you mean it, you have to be prepared for people to judge and either want to be around you to figure out the formula. There's a formula? Whatever that is. Or be prepared for people to not want to be around you because you are a pariah. Time for Ask Wendy, how you doing? Her audience eats it up, even seeking her advice about their own lives in a segment fittingly named Ask Wendy. Should I tell her I'd be telling her to step off? Uh -uh. No? No, no, I don't think. No, it's Ask Wendy, not Ask You. Watch her work and you realize not just anyone can do this. Call him after the show and tell him it's over. My gift is fearlessly talking, I guess. I've got a big heart, though. So, Wendy Williams is never mean just to be mean. No. I appreciate you all supporting... Her syndicated show attracts more than 2.5 million viewers every day. People smell a phony from a million miles away. Oh, you can fool them once. Mm -hmm. And you can fool them for a whole month. But you can't fool them for eight years. How you doing? The show started as a six-week trial. Executives weren't sure it would last much longer. So when it did... Williams took her success to heart. I used to sit in the audience. Just sit there. And cry by myself. This is me. And there's a lot of responsibility. 
and no matter what problem is going on in my life, I know I better leave it out in the street and come in here and lead by example. Come on, everybody. Woo! At home in Livingston, New Jersey, Williams at 52 calls herself a typical housewife with a little extra. I am very frugal, but when it comes to food, yeah, it's my luxury. We tagged along with her on a trip to the so grocery really store. Grocery shop. I'm sensing you're a foodie. Uh, excuse me, follow the drool on the floor. <laughs> As I walk through the aisles, am I a foodie? Caftan By the way, slippers? those are mink those, slippers. Those, those, those. She comes in a caftan and her mink slippers. She always looks great. Okay. Wendy Joan Williams was born and raised not too far from here. Her mother and father were both educators who didn't quite know how to deal with their daughter's gift of gab. I talked before I walked. My parents would always tell me, Wendy, you, you're talking too much, even as a little girl. And the code in the Williams household was TM, TL, TF. Too much, too fast, too loud. Williams studied communications in college and hosted her own radio show on campus. Even back then, she calculated her moves. Okay, I'm going to play by your rules until I'm not. She played by her own rules after college. When she took to New York City's radio waves, she convinced her boss that her listeners wanted celebrity dish. Said program director was um, skeptical, but okay, let me see what you do. Gave you a shot. And I've never looked back. Her radio persona took off. She gained a loyal following and eventually induction into the National Radio Hall of Fame. She also gained a long list of enemies. Among the first, Bill Cosby back in 1990. She talked openly about rumors of his alleged sexual misconduct. He called up the radio station and tried to get me fired. And my general manager believed Bill Cosby, not me, and called me to the office and he was on the speakerphone and I had to talk to him in kowtow. Now look what's happening. Hmm. Whitney, Whitney, Whitney. Wendy, Wendy, Wendy. But oh she didn't God. stop there. Consider her now infamous interrogation of Whitney Houston in 2003. Is that why you talk about me all the time? Absolutely. You, me? you don't even know me. Uh, While the singer was promoting a new album. Is there drug use going on at this present time? Who are you talking to? To you, Whitney. You. No, you're not talking to me. I'm a mother. That interview just careened wildly. You don't know what the I was Wendy on the radio doing my job. I'm interviewing. I'm asking questions. You smoke weed? Oh, <laughs> that interview became one of her most popular. Wendy, don't make me meet you outside. Come on now, you're getting too deep. You went there with Whitney. I would go there with everybody. And she goes there with herself, too talking openly about things most people keep off limits, like getting breast implants, going through two miscarriages, and battling a 10-year cocaine addiction in her 20s. How did you turn it around? I wanted more for myself. I had already done so much, and this guy came along, and then I said, well, maybe I could see myself marrying this man. Well, he's not gonna put up with my mess, sneaking around. I was still getting down. She got clean and married that guy. Kevin Hunter has since become her manager. The couple now runs a foundation to help other families struggling with addiction. They also have a 16-year-old son. We're all in this together as human beings. 
So if I can tell you about my struggle and then that can help you in some sort of way, then my job is done. I'm not embarrassed. But you do have some haters out there. Some. I mean, everybody has haters. Right, but they're harsh. I give it as good as I take it. This summer, she took it. I would be really offended if there was a school that was known as an historically white college. We have historically black colleges. On the very day we visited her set, she made these off-the-cuff comments about the National NAACP and historically only. black colleges. She faced backlash and lost National. one of the show's sponsors. Way, what, what is the C? Colored? We're still using colored? Like, I get it. Look, everybody's quiet. A week later, a different Wendy emerged. I want to apologize to everyone that I might have offended. Apology, and I was wrong. When you put yourself on the platform of being an entertainer, there are kind of certain things that you sign up for. Like what? Endless questions about endless things. Do you have any regrets? No, not one. All of my mistakes and successes have brought me to where I am right now. If I pulled something from the bottom or fire I might have started in the press, I might not be here. I like it here. <laughs> Ahead, 9-11 plus 15 years. Welcome to Play It, a new podcast network featuring radio and TV personalities talking business, sports, tech, entertainment, and more. Play it at play.it. Today, of course, is a day of remembrance for the 9-11 attacks on America. You're looking at pictures of ceremonies now underway at Ground Zero. Fifteen years later, the wreckage of the Twin Towers has long since been cleared, and a new tower has risen in their place. Even so, sorrow and healing share the site in equal measure. With Martha Teichner now, we pay our respects. Are they the tears of a nation weeping? Or a soothing rain forever trying to wash away the horror of what happened here? This is where the Twin Towers stood. Look down. You cannot see the bottom. And you cannot come here and forget for a moment that achingly perfect blue sky morning, September 11th, 2001. Oh, there's another one. Another plane just hit. When the planes hit. When the towers fell. When nearly 3,000 people died on this spot, it is hallowed ground. But 15 years later, life coexists with death. Some people see a cleansing, a catharsis when they see the water. Others see tears. What do you see? I see tears, but I also see diamonds. Judith Dupre has spent more than 20 years documenting the World Trade Center site and has written a book about its transformation since 9-11. This project is as much a part of 9-11 as the falling towers were. It's all on a continuum. Life is for the living. People need to live. It is a way of honoring the dead. 
Since this memorial opened in 2011, more than 28 million people have gazed at the names of the 9-11 dead, those killed at the World Trade Center, also the 40 who died at Shanksville, Pennsylvania, and 184 others at the Pentagon. A rose means it's someone's birthday. Having your son's name on this panel, uh, what does that mean to you? Hopefully they're not going to forget him. Lee Ielpi's son Jonathan was 29, a firefighter killed in the South Tower. I brought the First Lady of Japan here. She immediately did this. Water is very special. It's like holy water. Yeah, exactly. Ielpi was one of the so-called Band of Dads, retired firefighters who raced to the Trade Center site to help and then spent months digging through the rubble for the bodies of their sons. Of them all, only his son was found. You know, we found Jonathan on the 11th of December. Fifteen years on, ILP is still here, an advocate for September 11th families and co-founder of the 9-11 Tribute Center. When I had the coat, uh, I could hug it. Where his son's coat and helmet are now on display. Jonathan and my buddies are doing what they love to do. The birthday in my son's gear. Difficult. Nine months after the World Trade Center attacks, the site had been cleared, except for one nearly 60-ton beam. By then covered with the names and photos and jottings of the people who had done the clearing. And just as it had, each time human remains were found. Activity at Ground Zero stopped when that last column was removed and reverently borne away. But when the 9-11 Memorial Museum opened in 2014, 12 years later, there it was, the building built around it. When you go there, it all comes back, the feeling you had that day if you lived in New York City. A sickness, almost. John was a music and dance king. You're haunted again by the faces of the lost. You know, she had just a wonderful zest for life. All the smiling people whose stories have to be told for them here. What you're looking at here is called Impact Steel. This is where 9-11 begins. On Friday mornings, Greg Carafello is a volunteer docent. I'm a survivor of two world trades, so... I was here that day, and I owned the business in, inside the building in Two Wiltshire South Tower. The owner of a digital printing business in the South Tower, he nearly died on 9-11. His office was destroyed. These stairs are also known as a pathway to freedom. Because and yet here he is, week after week, right where it happened. What do you get out of it? I get a freedom from, the, from, the, uh, from that day. What do you mean? There's a certain uh, luggage that you carry since that day. And for me, it's a freedom to, to, to speak to the people and to share the experience, but also um, it's just cathartic. It lets me feel better. 
in sharing my story with them. He's with another printing company now and could work anywhere. But his office is on the 85th floor of the new One World Trade Center. Greg Carafello is the only Twin Towers businessman willing to take a chance on the site again. It's an act of pride. Coming back to one of the greatest buildings that I've ever been involved with as far as looking at the, the way it's built and the beauty of it, I think is a, it, it's a salute to what we do in America. It is 1,776 feet high, counting its spire. And like practically everything else on the 16-acre site, it didn't happen without fights over its design, over its name. One World Trade Center instead of the original Freedom Tower. Over what if, God forbid, there were another attack. One World Trade Center is built around a concrete core. That core is made of the strongest concrete ever used anywhere on the skyscraper. And so, um, should anything happen, all of the occupants, as well as all the communication systems, everything you might need, it's all protected inside of the core. There are ghostly nods to the Twin Towers. But what's new here at what used to be called Ground Zero has been built to be beautiful. The Oculus is a train station and a shopping mall. When I came in here the first time, it was almost uh, heavenly in a way. Sunday morning commissioned photographer Daniel Jones to take these pictures. Fifteen years after 9-11, the World Trade Center is still a work in progress with as many as three buildings not yet even begun. The cost? $15 billion and counting. Too much or a necessary down payment on healing? 26,000 people worked on this site. They gave it their all. And in the process of giving it their all, of doing back-breaking work, they also were the beneficiaries of the redemption that comes with that. They were after completion, they were after wholeness, and there isn't a single person that did not say they worked on this project on behalf of all those who died. It is a place to look down and weep. But it is also a place to look up and rejoice. What motivates the presidential candidate's most loyal supporters? We'll be hearing from Hillary Clinton's backers in a few weeks. Right now, though, Major Garrett on Donald Trump and the voters on his side. I could stand in the middle of Fifth Avenue and shoot somebody, and I wouldn't lose any voters, okay? It's like incredible. Donald Trump is a daily dose of exaggeration, but not about one thing, the size and fervor of his following. Wow, what a crowd. All across America, they line up for hours, waiting for the show. I got about two hours sleep. <laughs> we met Courtney Modisette at 6.30 a.m. in Westfield, Indiana, proudly perched outside the door for a 7 p.m. Trump event. What possessed you to come here 12 and a half hours early for the Trump rally? Uh, my kids are going to remember this. Their kids are going to remember this. And I grew up with my family loving Trump. Modisette is like many Trump voters we met in dozens of interviews. 
Until Trump came along, politics meant next to nothing. Unfortunately, this is sad to say, this is the first time that I voted. They're bringing drugs, they're bringing crime, they're rapists. Trump's voice has been raucous, caustic, insulting, and divisive. Cindy Lyons is from Jackson, Mississippi. Well, Donald Trump has a straightforward way that he communicates. Has he ever spoke so plainly that you kind of cringed? I understand what's behind what he's saying. Richard Matkey is from Londonderry, New Hampshire. He's not a dummy like everybody seems to think. You don't make a billion dollars being an idiot. <laughs> so he, uh, I, I think he's, he's smart enough to run the country. They're $5 or 3 for $10. Oh, Trump is also the voice of a part of America that's given up on the two parties and the system, one that smells corruption everywhere, a long-lost and so-called silent majority that is buying the political equivalent of a lottery ticket. They're all part of the same deal, man. You know, it's hold your nose and pull the lever. Trump voters have had enough of holding their nose. I mean, I'm mad. I've been mad. I'm one of the angry, you know, voters that they've been talk- discussing for the last year or so. We met Ray Parides at this Trump rally in Virginia, a three-hour drive from his home. What are you angry about? Like I said, I'm just angry that the Republicans, you know, it's like they're just milk toast. We talked to Trump before the South Carolina primary and asked about his fawning crowds and the weight of their expectations. Do you feel that is a burden, though, if you become it's president? It's a burden. It makes it tougher for them. I don't want to let these people down. Trump! Trump supporters believe, unshakably, something else. That Trump can't be bought. I didn't have to do this. George and Alexandra Simos of Massachusetts. He says the things that needs to be said. About what? What's the important truth. to you? the truth that nobody else says. Trump is different because he doesn't have to answer to any any donors, any lobbyists. You're fired. You're fired. You're fired. Part of the Trump phenomenon derives from fame, reality TV sizzle. You wanted law and order in this town. You've got it. A kind of lowbrow celebrity that former President Ronald Reagan was once derided for. The comparisons crop up frequently even though Trump supporters can't always explain why. Lucas Quinn from Union, Mississippi. He's got a little Reagan in him too, which is always a good thing. What echoes for you about Reagan and Trump? Just, uh, I don't really know. I mean, I I wasn't alive when Reagan was president, so I, I can't speak on Reagan, but. Details aside, Quinn is convinced Trump's got whatever Reagan had. Everything he did made America great. So make America great again. Make America great again. That slogan is part of the forlorn sense among Trump backers that America is losing something. We met Ariel Robb in West Bend, Wisconsin. She's been selling Trump products for months. They see a person that actually stands for, you know, what they've been thinking in their head but were too afraid to say all the years. Like defending the Confederate flag, which, ironically, Trump has said belongs in a museum. Rob sells it with Trump 2016 right in the middle. And it kind of just works together because there's a lot of controversy about Trump and there's a lot of controversy about the flag. Tremaine Williams, another Trump fan, was selling gear at the next tent. 
There's a perception that there's a distance, a great distance between Trump and African Americans in our country. Right. I believe it's being portrayed through the media as something like in those terms. Uh, look at my African American over here. Look at him. Are you the greatest? Trump rallies, wherever they are, draw far more whites than blacks, a trend Williams defied long before Trump began his late campaign minority outreach. What do you have to lose? Because I'm black, does that mean I live a certain lifestyle? Do I fall under a certain category? Mm -hmm. If you're for education, regardless if you're black or white, I'm for you. If you're talking about building the economic system, black or white, I support you. There's something else that works for Trump. visceral, almost primal hatred of Hillary Clinton. On t-shirts and through catcalls, Hillary Clinton is a bigot! It often gets ugly on the trail. Betsy Wilson of Virginia came to a Trump rally in patriotic dress and full of Clinton skepticism. And, um, I don't believe Hillary. I would like to see a woman president, but not her. Which brings us back to where we began, to Courtney Modisette and her day-long wait for Trump. What happens to this country if Trump isn't elected? That is a question I cannot answer. I, you know, with Hillary, with Clinton, you, you don't know. You can't trust her. That's the thing. And we will make America great again. Even Trump's supporters don't know the exact direction Trump will take them. They only believe it's better than where they've been. I'm Charles Osgood. Please join us again next Sunday morning. Till then, I'll see you on the radio. Hey, Prime members. You can listen to CBS Sunday Morning with Jane Polly ad-free on Amazon Music. Download the Amazon Music app today. Or you can listen ad-free with Wondery Plus in Apple Podcasts. Before you go, tell us about yourself by completing a short survey at Wondery.com survey.